Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Liz Manischel. And I am Ulrich Brissell. This week we have April Mullen, Canadian actress and filmmaker, uh, who has come on the show to talk with us about her latest feature, Wander, and her uh, pretty prolific career before that in TV and in film. But before that, let's let's do a catch-up. Arik, what, what are you up to? <laughs> so, <laughs> this week we don't have mail, so instead we thought we would just talk about what we've been up to in the last God knows how long since we've caught up with each other. So, Liz... Um, What's going on? I think the last no, time we talked don't put about it on a- me first. <laughs> Lady Parts. What's going on with your Lady Parts movie? Is anything news updates? No, I mean we're. Um, I finally gave notes on the script, which I had avoided doing for seven months. Oh um, and we've delivered a new script, and we're re-breaking down and budgeting that script. So we're finally in motion there, which is exciting. But while that's uh, playing out. I've decided today to make the very foolish decision to shoot a short and crowdfund for that short. Um, Yeah, I'm making a horror short in February. I'm going to crowdfund for it in January. And then I'll have a sample to give people as I look for traditional investors for my horror feature. So I am, um, yeah, I made this silly decision. I was going to make this short from like pocket change. And then I talked to my DP the person that always tells you to get more money. (laughs) And she was like, do you want it to look like pocket change, Liz? Or do you want it to really be a proof of concept for yourself and your future? And I was like, fuck you, Julia, you beautiful genius. (laughs) Um, And so we're crowdfunding. It's dangerous to talk to those cinematographers, isn't it? They get you every time. She's right, though. I mean, we were going to make the entire short for what I thought I could afford, which is actually a good amount of money. Like, I probably could afford $5,000. Oh, yeah. But that's a, that's a good number for a short, especially if it's a yeah, one day shoot. I think so. But it's a COVID situation, right? So good it's not going to cover the expenses. And so I'm going to crowdfund for, I think, another five. So that's my plan that I just decided today on Twitter. So I, for the likes, I said it for the likes. You said it for the likes. Well, can I grill you on this a little bit? I'm okay, just curious. Yeah, yeah because so, it could change. Yeah, go for it. No, I mean, first off, congratulations. Very exciting. Um, second off, uh, is this a proof of concept for your feature you're writing? No. no. It's a short into itself, but it's in the same genre as the feature. So it's going to be, a, it's gonna, it has its own story, but it's feminist body horror, which is what the feature is. Okay, so it's the same genre, same style different story yes and why did you decide to do that and not make it an actual like connected to the main story i think this is a way really fun story that i just want to make like i just want to make this if it weren't even if i didn't like need to have a proof that i can handle horror or like something completely different genre wise i'd want to make this film like i came up with the idea and i was like fuck i really want to direct this and is this something that you just came up with or that you've had for a while just came up with it yeah oh wow but but it's not in the same world at all of the feature that you're writing no and that's the other thing is the feature's not ready so it's like for me to kind of like 
figure out what the proof of concept for the feature would be when I'm not convinced that the feature's even close to the quality that I need it to be. Like, it just seems like a more of a gamble to me mm-hmm. to figure out a proof of concept idea when I have this short I really want to make and I already have the actors I really want to work with and the crew already figured out. But nice. I don't think they'll necessarily transition the same characters over to the feature. Right. So is the plan with this to do the traditional short film thing where you go to film festivals, all that stuff? Yeah. Okay. It's to connect with the genre of film community because right now they just see me as this like Nicole Hollis and I want to be. And, and, and not like they see me. They're not like people in the genre of film community are like, Liz Medishal, let's talk about her. But I'm just saying if they were to see some of my work, they'd just be like, who is this girl? And then I can <laughs> say, look, I made this. I want to be like one of you. It sounds like you've had the experience of being laughed out of the room trying to raise funds for a horror film. And now you're like, I have to make a better <laughs> proof of concept to prove to these people. But I, mean, I, I, I know I, I know not. you haven't tried. Yeah. But I mean, it, it makes sense because you're like basically preempting that. You're like, OK, I know I don't have any horror like work, you know, behind me that, to, to show you guys that I can actually make this movie I want to make. So I'm going to make one. That makes total sense. That makes perfect sense. And I think the other thing is I'm just really itchy to, you know, it's like I quit my job two months ago now. I want to have more under my plate. I want to have more things that I can talk about and put out into the world. And I can't do a feature right now. It's just near impossible. The about, I, can't, I can't gather that budget. Um, so I might as well just kind of like work my way and have fun and put another short out into the world. And do you have like, you don't even have a script that you want to make yet either right for the feature the feature is one third written and i'm finishing it by january 1st but the short is essentially already written i already have a script right well my point is that like you couldn't like even if you wanted to raise money for a feature you don't have the feature yet so it's hard to do that right like you kind of have to wait time yeah it needs more love yeah that makes sense but that's awesome. You know, congratulations. It's a really exciting feeling to like be taking on a new project and you get all yeah. excited about the creativity, yeah. you know, that you're putting into it and like how it's going to look and what it's going to be and what it's going to do and all those things. So that's awesome. And it just will be fun. Something that just seems really silly and fun, which is what I'm looking to it as. And every time I pitch it, someone laughs and that makes me really, really happy. Awesome. Um, but what are you up to? I know you've You're so close. You're so close to finishing. What is going on? Right. So I picture locked officially, which is great. (gasps) I finally locked picture. I did it last week or two weeks ago. On your feature, the alternate. Sorry, we have to say that. Because what if people are like, what? What? Tell me more about our... On the alternate, which I've been working on for almost eight years now, or over eight years now? I can't remember. It's been a long time. But yeah, so I picture locked a couple weeks ago. I um, I have the visual effects with the visual effects team. They're starting. The sound is with the sound team. They're starting. And then the color is like, like they prepared all the plates for visual effects. So the colorist has already kind of gotten to look at things. And then I still owe the colorist um, one more XML. But I'm basically ready to hit export on that now at this Ah. point. Because I got him the reference files he needs and everything so uh so yeah it's like i have like two more things i can do for the movie but then basically after that i'm just waiting for the rest of these guys to finish their work i secured funding for post which (gasps) i probably haven't talked about um 
<laughs> so that's good. It took a long time. I mean, it, it like like literally like we kind of thought, thought we had the source. We didn't know we had the source. We found another source. That source went away. Then we finally, the one that we thought we had, finally committed. And I think I should have the first deposit in my bank now. Is this to the like, person you were talking about who is like, 100% committed from the very beginning, so invested in the project, and then kind of got a little squirrely after, like, post-production started? Uh, a little. But, I mean, it's not necessarily fair to him because he did invest. Um, but then we just thought he was always going to come in for more, and then it was, like, uncertain, um, basically, yeah. once the movie was done, if he was. Um, and it was basically up to me to make a movie that was good enough for him to want to to actually, you know, finish. And you did it. And you and did I, it. We did you it. made yeah. it good enough. It took a lot, you know, and and it was like we worked on it in post probably a lot longer than I would have if I had if I had all the money myself and I didn't have this partner that I was working with, I probably would have picture locked like in August or even, you know, maybe July. But since I had this other person who was kept on pushing, 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 pushing um you know and, and i didn't have that to, didn't have the funds it's like well let's keep working on it and make it better and then we finally got to a place where i loved it i like i love it more now than i ever have and and he loves it as well so i think that's yeah. we're in a good spot at the end it was really hard for me to um to watch it and even know it was good anymore because i've seen it so many times and like mm. it's just like you're just going over the fine fine tiny little details and i think not having an editor was challenging because then you don't have someone to like you know back up the decisions editorially it's like all on you you know and so um it was a challenge but i'm really happy with where it's at i'm really excited um you know we've already submitted to a bunch of film festivals you know with the work in progress cut and uh sci-fi london definitely we'll go to sci-fi london my producer doesn't have any connections there he, so we're trying to like hit up all the places he has connections at which we got a few waivers from which was great but uh yeah i'm gonna do chattanooga which i know matt enlow friend of the show is a huge fan of and also joe bob briggs is a huge fan of too which ah. is cool phoenix phoenix film festival yeah i'll do phoenix okay. um next year yeah but you know all the big ones tribeca south by southwest sundance all, all that stuff i mean but you know they're all long shots, shots in the dark. You know, I'm, I guess the big one that I'm hoping for is Fantasia, um, which mm. we haven't submitted to. And by the time they are open, we should be f completely finished. And so I think it'll be better to show the, a final cut with the visual effects. Um, so that's the big thing. And then like, yeah, I'm, now I'm just trying. I think I'm finally ready to start writing my next movie. And so I have a bunch of different ideas and I've got to really just take a day and like write all the ideas out and yeah. like think about which one I'm going to work on and where, what direction I'm going to go. Cause I, I get constantly tugged in different directions by my mind of like, Oh, you should write a movie about this or, Oh, this script you worked on before is like really awesome. Like keep working on that one, you know, but then it's like hard because a lot of the ideas I have are bigger budget ideas, like over a couple million or, or more, you know. And but could you like, write to sell? Like, could that be a goal or you never would want to do that? I could. Um, I'd, I'd rather write to sell with me as the director. Sure, of course. But yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like it just needs to be whatever wants to come out to, to work on next. And then um, my buddy Alex Kellerman, friend of the show, who... Have you met? You probably haven't met Alex. I've Kerman. talked to him, but I and I. You have talked to him. But okay. I've not met him. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, he's a great guy, and he's writing the feature version of one of my shorts, Brother, um, which oh. he says is almost done. So, like, when that's done, that might become the next thing that I like really try to get out into the world because um, 
you know, I love that story. I love his pitch on it. I love the idea that he had for it. And I think it could be really good. So, so yeah, lots of exciting things going on. You know, um, I just met with a friend about maybe directing some music videos for her. So see if that happens. I don't know. Well, see, you're on set a lot, you know, like you're, you're also scratching that itch regularly. That's Mm -hmm. such a weird phrase but you're you're regularly (laughs) like on set working the craft so i think that's what's also really great about what you do is that like you're constantly exercising it's different though because when you're not directing it's a completely different muscle and like it's a completely different level of um you know engagement with the craft because it's like it's not up to me to decide what we're gonna make or how we're gonna make something look it's just up to me to make sure it gets done and that we have the tools we need um so yeah that's why the directing the music video seems nice because it's like okay this is a chance for me to be fully creative and partner with somebody and make something really cool that's like i can have my own stamp on you know um because like yes i haven't really directed much since the alternate just one corporate video and uh and that's it (laughs) i mean i've just done this short lena you know so i get it but I think that's also why I'm like, just do another short. Yeah. Would I do another short? But not short? for you. I you did would. a bunch of shorts before you did the feature. I didn't do that. So I'm I probably to... would do another short though, but it would probably have to be a proof of concept, like something that I was going to use to raise money. You know, mm-hmm. I just want to make something else and like kind of figure out what the next project is because I had this, you know, for so long, it's like I had this movie that was this thing that I needed to do. And now it's like pretty much done, almost done. It's like, I kind of think, feel like Thanos, where he's like, my work is done, and now I get to rest. I kind of yeah. feel like that. Like, I get to rest now. And it's like, well, yeah. but what's next? Like, I don't want to just go to a planet and cook stew or whatever and wait to be murdered. <laughs> I, I, I want to, like, you know, want to make another movie. So it's like trying to figure out what the next thing I'm going to devote, like, the next, like, five-plus years of my life to. Like, that's sort of what I'm – I'm in that hunt, hunter mode right now, trying to find that next thing. If you want unsolicited advice, you should devote the next five years to – 20 different projects (laughs) you should diversify yeah you need to have your fingers in like 15 different thimbles or whatever as as a director in all of them or uh just whatever as a director a few as a producer right mix it up i mean i already do that like i have a movie i produced in february that's coming out probably next year and you know there's already all the little pies but um yeah i guess i want to find the big pie like what's that? Because because you, don't you feel that way? Don't you feel like you always have one main thing that you're like is the biggest thing, and then there's littler things yeah. underneath. Well, Lady Parts was that for a while, right? And I'm still right. thinking it's going to go in the summer, but you know, until it's not real until it's real, right? And I have this idea for another feature that I can't even like verbalize. I haven't, I can't even put it on paper, but it's just this feeling. Right. Wait, I want. I know this is not a capping off that idea, but I wanted to bring up the fact that I re-listened the first time I was ever on this podcast in 2016, I think, oh maybe God, 2017. Wow. And I re-listened to you and Timothy interview me. And first of all, I'm very unlikable in that interview. And then second of all, like I dispense bad advice to people. What do you, what I'm do like, you say? I'm like on my hike listening to myself and I'm like, I can't believe I just said that. I want. I was telling people to apply to sub uh, apply wide to film festivals oh, just apply widely to film festivals and it's like that's not you don't think so no i mean you got to be very strategic you don't want to waste your money you don't go wide you like you know you go regional or niche or but i just i just think it's funny that like 
whatever. I just think no one should have listened to me. But no one should listen to me now, but no one should have listened to me four years ago. Right. Well, you know, I, I think you must have been at least somewhat likable because we've brought you back on the podcast time and time again, and now you co-host it, so you couldn't have so been nice on. so nice to hear Timothy, though. I was like, oh, Timothy's like really unrelent. He's like re- unrelenting with certain questions. And I was like, yeah. Oh, yeah. He won't stop until he gets the answer that he wants, or at least the question that he wanted to hear the answer to, that he gets some version of the answer, you know, to that question. No, I thought I was very cool. I was like, oh, he's good. Sorry, that has nothing to do with anything, but I wanted to mention um, how charming you guys were four years ago. All of that's gone now, of course, but. um... (laughs) It's all down the drain now. It's terrible. It's too bad that he doesn't want to do it anymore and that he's not in the filmmaking zone any longer but maybe he will be once again you know yeah. but um the other thing when he left matt and warren kaplan from just shoot it so badly wanted to have me and him on to talk about the ending of his filmmaking career and he like refused i get that like i don't know if i'd want to extrapolate on like a really personal decision like that you know but it's it was such a good opportunity to discuss like what we've been talking about for the last like three or four years or whatever it was at that time because yeah. You were always saying that it's like maybe it's time to move on to something else if it's like you don't love it or it's not rewarding to you or not fulfilling you or or whatever, you know, it's like it's okay to quit. Like we used to say that like, oh, it's okay to, to quit. Like there's not a big deal. And yeah. he, he did. It's just interesting. Like it would have been a really interesting conversation to talk to him about that openly. But I guess he wasn't ready or interested. Maybe we could bring him back. Oh, God, I've tried. <laughs> we'll just, write, I tried we'll just like do our two one years two ago. punch our joe joe bob briggs tactic which is yeah you know i write a letter and it gets ignored and then a month later we write another letter and it gets answered <laughs> oh my god <laughs> if only that worked that all the time <laughs> and, and not just that once <laughs> all right well this has been really interesting to hear what you've been up to and uh yeah, you too makes me want to make stuff i want to go out and shoot something get itchy and I just, it's yeah. like so fun to feel that high of the new project. I get, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how long it lasts. Yeah, no, I can't wait to see, see the behind the scenes and eventually see the movie in a year or so when it's done. I got us, what's up with Lena? When's, what's, when's that coming out? Um, well, it's in festival submissions, so we're waiting to hear back what our premiere is, but it's nice. done. It's done, done, done. And Erica, awesome. I'm positive, is listening to this right now because she oh, listens yeah. to every single she episode. She does listen to every episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she's just so such a joy and such a talented actress. So, um, I want is she the to star? Yeah. She wrote oh. it, and she's the star. And wow. yeah, she's fantastic. Okay, let's move on. We should probably do the thing that we normally do where we talk about uh, what you could do if you wanted to reach us, which apparently no one wanted to reach us this week, so that's okay. It's been a busy week for people. (laughs) It's been a busy week. I get it. (laughs) But if you want, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show a lot, you can leave us a review on iTunes or any of the other places you can leave reviews for this podcast, which I think is Stitcher and maybe a couple other places. Um, or just a rating. You don't even have to write anything. You could just hit the stars that you think we deserve and give us those. That would be great. Um, we also have a Patreon page. So if you really, really love the show um, and you want to support us, you can go over to patreon.com slash podcast and give us a dollar, four dollars for a sticker. Is that right, Liz? Yeah. And then if you want to go all the way up to $9, you'll get a fancy enamel pin, which are so awesome. And I still need to figure out where I'm going to put mine. Should I like 
put it on a shirt or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, I'm a big do fan anything. of those. And then lastly, you should go over to our Instagram page and you should check out the link in our bio to our new YouTube page and go over there and uh, like our YouTube page, subscribe to it, and then you should comment on them and we'll read what you say right here on this podcast. But Liz, what do you have some soap dish to dish to us? Why, I do. All right, so uh, this new filmmaker named Paul Notice um, is sharing a little bit more about his latest project, Willow, and he self-submitted a five-minute piece about, um, you know, why he's making it and how he's doing it. We don't usually do this. Like, we very rarely will have people on the podcast who have crowdfunding campaigns because it's just not a thing that we do, and... You know, I don't feel like people really want to be um, sold crowdfunding campaigns all the time, but I just thought this was a really interesting project and he seemed like a really interesting filmmaker. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious to hear what he has to say about his project. And then you guys can decide, does he deserve a $5 donation, a $20 donation, zero donations? I don't know. Let's find out when we hear from Paul. I'm Lori Craven and... I'm an actress. An actress, really? How nice for you. I'm Betsy Faye Sharon, and I'm a bitch. Hey, I am Paul Notice, the writer and an executive producer of Willow. And and, and yes, here are the, the answers to your questions. I know it's like a little bit of a, of a different format. I had to remember all, all the things I wanted to talk about in the uh, in the answers and stuff. So I, I wrote them down here. Um, but apart from that, I'll do my best to be off book. Oh, also, just thank you for uh, bringing me on. I, I feel. So an honor to be on this podcast. I listen to us a lot. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's yeah. There's gonna be that strange thing. I have to hear my voice. All right, great. So um, I'm gonna go on and answer, and I will try my best not to lift it up too much. So after seven years of working on this film, why are you able to make it now? This 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 film was very heady. I mean, it's about people uh, feeding on each other in order to survive. So that already is a, just a heady. What? Like, are you talking about vampires? Are you talking about zombies? Are we talking about some weird form of cannibalism or something like that? If you add that to just the, I would say, uh, pervasive sense of white supremacy that just lives in uh, regular, everyday, mainstream theater and cinema, it was hard to find people who would accept both the concept. And then on top of that, you have a all-black cast, all-black principal cast, with 90% women uh, as the, the the characters. So during those seven years, I, I got so much rejection. And shouts to the people that did say yes to like at least workshops and small things there, people who did wanna like make this concept work or make this project work. But I got a lot of rejections. 2013, there's a, a workshop with New York Theater Workshop. Uh, I went through so many revisions. So that, that took time and I had to find the right people. I, I think the reason why it's great now is because I found a capable and uh, talented team of producers. So I had all that at the beginning of 2020 and then the pandemic happened and it did delay the movie, but ironically enough, I got the money to finance that and the equipment that we would use for shooting the trailer and also for other production things too. I got that through an SBA loan for my nonprofit. And it was made possible because of the efforts that the United States government went through, despite who's in the White House right now. Um, <laughs> the, the, the SBA loan actually, ironically enough, and 
it worked for me. It's wild. So that's that's really what kicked off us being able to, to work our way through this pandemic. I, I had that. We were able to shoot. We were able to pull everything together. I mean, even just learning the the, the safety guidelines from SAG-AFTRA for uh, for shooting in a pandemic. I mean that that by itself was a challenge, but we we got through that. But it all started once uh, once I got approved for that loan and once that money was there. What? It was game time. Do you have any funds raised before you launched your campaign? Uh, yeah, we are. We already started talking to friends, family, uh, you know, associates, and everything before the crowdfunding campaign launched. So my mom, and my grandma already sent checks right away, um, which was just you know surprising. Just great. You know, sometimes you don't realize you need something until you, you have it, and you're just like, thank you. You know, it's. Makes me want to cry, Michael Ladia. But uh, yes, yeah, 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 we started doing that, and I put like 15k of my own cash into that, uh, purchasing a lot of the equipment that we're going to be using and that we already did use in the trailer, uh, the lighting equipment and stuff, um, and also the paying people, <laughs> paying people and doing these the, the crazy set build out that I had to do for uh, Sasha Obama's office. We have a lot of costume pieces and props that we purchased, so that just cuts down on a lot. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we did a little bit of spending before we launched this campaign, for sure. Besides uh, writing scripts, what other preps have you done for uh, the film and get ready for it? I mean, yeah, okay, so one of the first things we did was um, do a full, complete line item budget. We had to have a full production uh, plan. We developed a production outline, a tentative uh, rehearsal schedule, uh, a crew list, and a, a list of crew referrals. Along with that, we have a marketing plan. We have a distribution plan uh, with like different types of point A through C. And because of all of our combined resources and talent, we were able to come up with a really sizable, like a nice sizable number, $69,000, that if we get that, we can actually get through principal photography. At the bare minimum, we can get through that. And the larger budget is $120,000, right? That is the bare minimum budget if you want to get the whole thing made from pre-production, principal photography, post-production, marketing, distribution, everything, start to finish, we can do it for 120,000. That's the bare minimum, the cheapest that we can do a pretty quality film. If we want to go crazy, if we're able to raise more, of course, it'll go more into special effects and everything else, but we can make a film for 120,000. What we need to make at the very bare minimum, for us to get through that second phase, principal photography, we needed $69,000, and that's what we're raising. This project is meant to serve as a guide point. So you think of it as a Green New Deal for Hollywood's problem with race. And, and when I say race, I wanna, I wanna make sure that everyone knows, when people say race in that context, uh, it means white supremacy. So. This film is meant to confront Hollywood's problem with white supremacy. Oops, I said out loud. Yeah. But, but let's not mince words. Chauvinism, uh, transphobia, homophobia, uh, xenophobia, all of these things, obviously anti-black racism, those are the reasons why mainstream depictions of marginalized groups are too often disguised attempts at cultural violence. Willow and films like Willow are meant to challenge that. So yeah, 
You can uh, support by going to bit.ly forward slash willow horror, or you can, uh, you know, like and share and, and just come and watch our stuff. Listen, y'all, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I really do. This, this is a, it's awesome. I daydreamed a lot about being on this show and talking about like my own stuff. It's really weird to do it. <laughs> It's so, it's so surreal. So thank you for, uh, for entertaining me and having me on your show. I appreciate it, for sure. Let's get to our conversation with April Mullen. I am plugged in and I am ears on. Well, thank you, April. So our first question for our rapid fire round is for Wander. Uh, how many days did you shoot? 22. And what was your budget? Very puny, not what you think. <laughs> Below the line was like the same as my indie films. I can't really give a real response, but it's not good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. I would get a huge licking if I told the truth. I mean, no one ever says like, oh, it was a massive amount of money. It was so vast. <laughs> like no, everyone always says it was less than you would expect or very little. This is very, very indie. As Although the stars are huge and the cast is huge, it's... The below the line was very puny, like credit cards and all. You know what I mean? Right, right. The things they say don't do, April, don't ever do that again. And I just keep doing that. That. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you work on the film from the inception, um, this, you know, the idea stage to its release? Five years. Wow. And then how big was your crew? Our crew was about 40 people in total. It was small. We were lightweight. We were able to move and we shot in the town of Carrizozo, New Mexico. And so there were a lot of locals and we brought a bunch of Canadians that I had worked with on previous films, like our DP, our production designer, our editor, we're all Canadian. So there was a mix match. It was really nice coming together. Out of all your projects, how difficult was this one? You know what's funny? I thought Dead Before Dawn 3D, seeing that it was like the first 3D film made in Canada, um, was going to be a lot harder on a $1.2 million budget. I thought that was like insanity because we were like making a quasar rig and like inventing technology to shoot 3D. I thought that was it for me. Like it was never going to get harder. It was always going to be 2D, like so simple from now on. And how could <laughs> anything be harder than shooting a technology that we couldn't afford <laughs> in a medium that like was still discovering itself? but Wander was harder. And, you know, it's odd, like Dead Before Dawn was 10 years ago. And I wish I wish I could say, oh, you know, I, I could pinpoint what made Wander harder. But I believe it was all of everything that happened. Like it was very difficult to get the film financed and off the ground, like five years, you know, writing and just really trying to get the right, you know, cast. And, um, and then when we were shooting, it just we were handcuffed in so many ways. Like every day was riding that roller coaster that is, are we gonna make our day? You know, and I have my beautiful, like perfectly planned shot list as per usual, like all organized, we've blocked everything, everything's all ready. But the first day there was a huge monsoon that came through the desert and none of our other locations were ready. None of our actors were there. So we had to, you know, not shoot the one or shot and that opens the film which was three hours of time. And we were just like, well, how are we ever gonna make up this three hours? Because there was like no wiggle room in the schedule. I was also being overly ambitious with like sunset and sunrises and you know, 
maybe that was it. Like I was just harder on myself in general, but gosh, Wander was, I think Wander was the hardest one and it shouldn't be, it should have been the first feature, but it's, it was a big concept and it was just wildly ambitious for what we had. Was it, was it like you should have had a 30 day shooting schedule and then you had to like knock it down to a 22 shooting day schedule. Was that one of the reasons why it was so hard? Cause you just had less time. Yes, that, that is part of it. And um, I think just raising the finances to put together, like Tim, my producing partner and I uh, started from the ground up doing micro budget features out of Canada. So we were very used to the financial structures in Canada, where to source our financing, you know, Telefilm Canada, OMDC, we have strong support and tax credits here. And then in the U.S., it was our first time financing completely out of our comfort zone. And it was just a lot more challenging than you could ever imagine to raise the funds. Like at the very last minute, right as we're like, you know, casting Tommy Lee Jones and people are flying in, we somebody came, you know, a private investor fell out. And, you know, you have 48 hours to try and fill that gap. When you have Tommy Lee Jones, someone <laughs> pulls out. That's insane. I know. Well, it's just like, I wasn't used to that because in Canada, those, those things don't happen. It's so like, cross your T's, dot your I's. And it's very secure because it's like three years of putting together financing. Whereas in the US, like a private investor can, you know, drop out at any time really. And they, and things happen and funds don't show up. And I just wasn't as a producer, I wasn't used to that. And so, you know, those kind of things happening at the last minute and then trying to navigate that as quickly as possible. And stay positive and stay the course and get the film made was just like an extra kind of hiccup. Like creatively, I can always handle the hiccups, but the financial stuff, it's not so fun. <laughs> like why come to the U.S.? I mean, obviously uh, there's some exciting parts of the U.S. box office that maybe a domestic film might have more access to. I mean, I don't actually know if that's true, but um why did you move from the Canadian financing system to these private equity investors? To challenge ourselves. You know, you want to grow as producers. You want to grow as filmmakers. You want to be a part of Hollywood because that's where the industry's heartbeat kind of lies. And so, of course, we jumped in full feet and uh, wanted access to bigger cast. And, you know, we really wanted to set the film in New Mexico because conspiracy theories and like MK Ultra and all of our research with Roswell, really the the truth of that land and the history behind what's happened in New Mexico or the conspiracy, but I believe what's happened in New Mexico was so important to the story. And so we were really fighting for that to be able to shoot in New Mexico and and take advantage of the landscape, the history, the kind of like the spirit, the energy that that location contains and th that's nowhere else in the world like for our story for wander it was somewhere in new mexico we didn't know where like when we started our location scouting we were really on the hunt for a small town which to be honest new mexico was a lot more populated than we thought and a lot more modern than we thought the cities were big the population was huge um so we really did have to hunt and then we found the most perfect character in the film and town which was Carrizozo, New Mexico. And that's why we had to stray away as well for, you know, away from Canada, because we didn't have that history nor that landscape um, in terms of like the conspiracy 
world and human testing and what's happened in New Mexico. So, so if you get your funding from Canada, you can't, you have to shoot in Canada. You can't shoot outside of Canada. Is that the rule or? No, there's, so there's different rules with every single country. So depending on the country, there are co-productions that are phenomenal and in place and there are awesome rules. But unfortunately, the biggest country in the world that, you know, is making turnaround the, you know, most amount of films and TV is the United States. And we don't have a co-production with the U.S. So there's nothing Mm. that really allows us to cross borders in a very economical and, um, you know, profitable in terms of budgets and tax credits way that makes sense for the producer. That needs to change. It doesn't right now exist. I wish it did because it would have made things a lot easier. But U.S. productions can always come to Canada and the tax credits of shooting here on location in Canada still um, holds true. So the U.S. productions that are shooting here are receiving tax credits from the government for hiring Canadians and shooting on Canadian land. But the reverse doesn't happen. Uh, But we did receive New Mexico tax credits. Oh, good. (laughs) We're not... Or not 100% horrible. Um, no, no, not at all. And no. they were so supportive. The The New Mexico film community, what were they were so helpful. They were really, really opening their arms and kind and um, helped us navigate those waters. Well, there seems to be a burgeoning film scene. I mean, it's like that's why Netflix moved their production hub there. I have friends who just moved there to Albuquerque. I think it's super interesting. Um, for those who haven't seen the film, and to get a little bit more insight into your creative process as, you know, as a writer, can you talk a little bit about the origin of you finding out about the, this, these stories? Yes. So Tim Doran, my producing partner and longtime writing partner, we've worked together for 20 years. And I think this is our sixth film, but we've collaborated. So when we finished 88, we were sort of, which was about a fugue state, we were sort of coming together and like, what are we going to create next? What do we want to create next? Where are we at in our careers? Where are our voices at? What do we have to say? And Tim at the time was going through mental health issues in terms of dealing with paranoia, government surveillances, being watched by Big Brother, you know, the fact that our phones are tapped, internet's tapped, everything's, you know, being kind of navigated in weird advertisement ways to you and the fact that we're you know our every move is now currently being analyzed and watched for consumerism and other reasons and you know all of that basically he was struggling with that and having enormous amounts of anxiety and had these little signs all over his apartment like i am powerful i am protected like we see in the movie with arthur our main character so as we were sort of talking about that world he thought it would be interesting and so did I that our lead character actually be going through what probably a lot of people are nowadays is this fear of surveillance government surveillance conspiracy theories and what's real and what's not and are we being watched at all times and for what purposes and that can really cause a huge fear and anxiety of leaving the house so was there a way to truthfully bring that into our lead character and then we had to kind of fictionalize a story around that. So we, you know, we thought if there was a way where he had to force himself through his biggest fear, which for him was the conspiracy, you know, that somebody was behind the act that killed his daughter. If he had to face that fear front on as our hero, 
as a silent warrior, would he be able to leave his Winnebago that he's been, you know, isolated from the world? Would he be able to face those fears? What would that look like? How would that journey unravel? And, you know, dealing with panic attacks and and um, delusions and trying to deal with medication management and everything on your own. We just thought that that was a really great kind of truthful, you know, side of things to bring to a lead character. Tim and I are both huge on conspiracies and, um, you know, really shedding a light to those who are fighting for the truth and the light in the world. You know, we call them the silent warriors who are out there every day trying to shed light on the truth and share that information with people, audiences, and um, really admire those people. And we wanted to pay homage to that. And uh, so that's kind of how it started. And uh, that that was the seed, so to speak. So I guess, like, you made so many films. Like, you guys have, like, an amazing track record. And so going into Wander, you're talking about all these issues with financing and you know, trying to get the money together. And I understand going from a Canadian, you know, type of fundraising to American is tough, but like, I want to talk about like what, um, like once you did get like your base investors, like, like what was your process to casting the film? Like, how did that, how did that come about? So believe it or not, Aaron Eckhart was the first actor we went to for the role of Arthur. That being said, it took him a long time to actually get a response and read the script. I think we waited eight months, you know, and at the same time, we were also trying to finance the film and we were working on the script and I was working on my shot list. Like there was lots going on, but we, we really believed that for, you know, for all kinds of reasons, we believe that Aaron Eckhart was Arthur Bretnick. And lo and behold, when he actually did get his hands on the script, Chad Birdie um, gave us a call and said, you know, he loves the script. He's interested which is a producer on the film. And we met in Los Angeles. We flew down, met in Los Angeles, the three of us. And it was like a coming together of minds. Like I left that meeting thinking, oh my gosh, could there not be another human being more perfect? Like we can't make this film unless it's with him, even if I have to wait a decade. He strongly believes in government surveillance, conspiracies, you know, knows about MKUltra, knew about the Illuminati. He was so current in terms of those subject matters and even knew more than you know we could ever have imagined like he brought so much to the table and connected so tightly to the story of you know avenging the daughter's death and fighting for that and he is a like a light warrior he always says he's a light warrior he's fighting for the light and we left that just saying like this is just written in the stars like Aaron Eckhart as that role was just written in the stars and I had never seen him do anything like that in his career like he's normally and he always he's very handsome and such a charismatic energy and he's played you know in romantic comedies and um something like this like so raw and so vulnerable and so indie there's like an indie spirit to even arthur even the character and disheveled and broken i just thought you know how is this going to play out and then the moment when we met him it was just like he he is perfect for this. He's just beyond perfect. And then once we had Aaron, it was a lot easier because, you know, when when agents and managers are reading the script, we had Aaron Eckhart's sort of picture as that lead character. And that really helps get other actors and actresses on board and uh, 
Tommy Lee Jones was last to the table because we, we couldn't find the right Jimmy. And again, we were in Carrizozo, New Mexico. We were two weeks away from shooting and I still hadn't found our Jimmy. And then we flew to Los Angeles to the Beverly Hills Hotel late at night. And we were there for 12 hours, met for lunch. He had some questions about the script. I sort of explained my vision and went through photos and the locations that we were planning to shoot at. And by the time we landed back in Carrizozo and drove like four hours to our little town, we had gotten a yes. So, you know, that was the last puzzle piece, which I thought Jimmy was going to be cast six months prior to, but it just turned out that, you know, people were committed and then they were falling apart and then it just worked. And then I cannot picture anyone else, but Tommy Lee Jones as the role of Jimmy now. And I, I just feel like it was just the, the right, we had to wait for the right perfect um, opportunity to approach him. And I'm, I'm so grateful that it was Tommy and Aaron because they're dynamic, like electrical kind of magnetic conversations in the film. I just would be at the monitor in awe and just like, okay, we have a movie. <laughs> this is it. As you're talking to cast, crew members, financiers, are you pushing that impact angle of the film? Or are you talking about the story? Are you saying, you know, your love of conspiracy theories and, and the fear of government surveillance and all these things, is that is that the forefront of your pitch? Or is that something you just shared with Aaron because you saw something in him that was a kindred spirit? Yeah, that's definitely something I shared with Aaron and people like you who are kind of like wanting to know the behind the scenes, the truth behind like why we made what we did. But for like the hardcore pitch and for sales and for distributors, you know, it's seen as a psychological thriller with action elements and it's going to keep you guessing till the end. It's entertaining. It's fast paced. Yes, it involves very current subject matters like border control and chip technology and diving deeper into those. And it's about grief. and a hero coming through to the light on the other side. But that's like my micro pitch to those mm -hmm. guys um, because, you know, they don't want to hear about all the other stuff in a lot <laughs> of ways. They, they want to make sure um, it's sellable, that audiences want to see it, that there's a hunger and an appetite for that kind of content in the marketplace right now. They need to know that people are going to click yes and buy it and download it because that's, what their job is and you know I don't blame them and I always want to make content that will be seen because at the end of the day as a filmmaker why we do what we do is to share we want to share our stories and and we want to affect people and inspire people and it's a it's a fine line between commercialism and also trying to say something original and unique and but making sure you can make your money back and keep financers happy so you can make another movie <laughs> otherwise you get a reputation of costing too much and not making enough which is terrifying because all we're doing really is trying our hardest <laughs> so going back to the casting you said that you know you were still financing when you approached Aaron Eckhart in the beginning um like what was your like what was it like an ask oh you know join our movie sign on then we'll raise the money or like what do you what do you tell Aaron's agents in that situation in order to get him to read the script and you know give you guys a shot you have to be like somewhat financed you don't have to be all the way financed because financing depends so much on the cast and the numbers through the algorithms of who knows what blah, 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 blah. netflix like decides who's gonna bend the numbers into which direction those things uh, you know that's another beast but you do have to have i would say like 50 percent of your financing in line and you you know a, 
obviously producers with reputable production companies and who have made films before and kind of have a good track record. If you say you're 50% financed and this is your plan for the rest and these are your sales agents that are on board, usually they're fine with reading the script and they understand that the rest is a business and we can't move forward with full financing until we're cast because the budget might also shift depending on your stars. You know, if you if you think you can achieve more with certain casts, you will the budget might go up a bit. And and if that's not possible, you have to be smart and be more economical because you might not sell in international territories. You know, all of those things come into play later on after cast is kind of nailed down creatively. I want to jump to TV. Can I jump to TV, Elric? I'm going to do it. I'm going to go yeah. for it. Um, so, I mean, both, both Elric and I have worked in the micro-budget future space. So we understand bootstraps filmmaking and getting it off the ground. And you said that you had done some micro-budget content, but TV is a whole nother beast, right? And so I'm just curious how you leverage your feature filmmaking career into a very successful um, television directing career and kind of the relationship of promoting one to get to the other and vice versa? That's a great question. I think, you know, it is a fine line and a balance because you can kind of only make a feature every other year, every third year, if you're lucky, because they take so much of your creative energy. I stand by the film and I see it through composing, you know, color correction. I'm there every day. I don't just like come in for a last day supervision. I'm really like really, really hands-on. So if you're doing a feature, your time is dedicated to that. And then to try and also balance a TV career, you know, they want to see original content, um, which might not have been the case in the past. I don't think TV directors were uh, necessarily looked at in the feature world. I think it was kind of more separate. But now that TV has become so creative and and so unique, and there's a strong voices in, in television right now, and it's an art form, a strong art form. It's not as formulaic as it might have been they want to see original content. So like they want to see movies, but when are you supposed to make them in the amount of time when you're supposed to also be like getting better and shooting TV series um, and, and making sure that you can continue your career in television, you know, to, to do wander, I had to turn down, which might've been my busiest and best TV year yet, but I needed at least eight months. Then I kind of dipped out in, in between and did, Tiny Pretty Things with Netflix and then Blood and Treasure. And I was sort of editing at the same time, which was tough. You know, you're overlapping, but it's necessary to be able to like still have food on the table, <laughs> so to speak. And with TV, you get to enter new and big genres for a short amount of time and really test your skills. Like, you know, you have a huge crew, the budget's there, a really tight turnaround. You have all the gear you want. You can pitch wild ideas now and showrunners actually go for it like I'm always surprised I'm in the room and I'm like what about this you know and I sort of think I wonder how this is going to go down and I get a yes like I think they're very open to filmmakers and as long as you make your days because in tv the time the timeline is very tight but if you're from the indie world you're kind of like used to that like for me the transition was very easy it was seamless it, it to me felt a lot easier than the independent cinema I had done probably because we were producing and, you know, directing and all at once. And TV felt like summer camp. Not that I'm supposed to say that, I guess, but I was just like, it's the same time constraints in this, like very efficiently run, but you have like 
50% more people and humans to help you. And they've all been there, you know, for a year. So they, they know everything back, you know, backwards and forwards. And then you have all the gear in the world you want. Um, for the most part, you're like two crane days, but to be told that and just have those, you know, and rather than making the decisions on like, how am I going to shoot this? Let me see if I can try to weave these things together for my schedule in a feature film. It's so much more dense. And uh, I, I loved working in TV because I was allowed freedom, but also in a very safe, sp- uh, safe space. Did you uh, jump into the world through representation or was it um, a direct reach or how did you start directing TV? So when I started directing TV, the women in film movement, not that it would have changed things, but I I have to say, I think it would have changed things dramatically. Uh, I was way earlier on. So it was very rare for women to be directing TV. And I remember in my first, you know, few interviews, they're just like, we've had one female director and she didn't really take charge. So now there's like a tainted kind of outlook on female directors. And I was just like, like things that today, if a weird you know, thing people to say. were aware of, <laughs> you could just get married. It'd be so much easier. You know, they're not, there's not a lot of female directors. You're young right now. You have a window to get married and just marry up. And I was just like, like, those were my interviews, to be wow. honest, with like network, network execs at the time. Like, this is 15 years ago, right? Me trying to break into TV. I had done two features, maybe three. Wow. I haven't told many people that story because I don't usually like to go down that route, but it was odd. I remember being so discouraged and believe it or not, I had done four features and there was, you know, somebody was considering kind of hiring me on my first TV show, but I had no experience in TV and I had to shadow. So I shadowed on Beauty and the Beast and then I shadowed on Rain. And, you know, when you're shadowing, you don't get paid. You have to take a month off of your time and you have to be there on set every day. I was observing and it was a new landscape. So I did, I, I'm glad I did it, but it was also kind of like, you know, I, I had done those things with my eyes closed because I kind of had done that for almost 10 years. Uh, but you had to pay your dues. It's a new, it's a new art form. It's a new medium. And so I shadowed and then I got a Montreal series, which was a doc had doc elements and it was shot in five days and it was a real true crime series real detective and petro the showrunner uh we were vying for the pilot so writing and directing the pilot with my producing partner writing partner tim doran and we had pitched this incredible series and so we didn't get the pilot because we weren't experienced enough in tv but he believed enough in us to hire us which was fantastic Oh, gosh, I had a, a few questions around the TV stuff. I mean, like when you were shattering, shadowing, do you feel like you learned something from the shadowing experience that you didn't know? Or do you really feel like it was just like, oh, I'm only doing this because I have to kind of thing? No, no. Once I was shadowing, I invested. Like I invested, I was present. I really gave it my all. I was, you know, thinking of ways that I would shoot it and like kind of shot listing and seeing how I would make my days work. Like I gave it my all and, and learned a lot from the, um, the whole experience just from afar, but uh, definitely you kind of get what you put in. And I think it was an important experience. You know, it, it was different and it was helpful. And I did learn a lot. It, I think it's helpful anytime you're on set. You don't usually as a director get to see other directors direct because you're always kind of just handing off the baton 
as you cross paths for maybe like two hours on a TV series. So it was interesting just to see another director approach material and how they approach actors and how they approach blocking and what their personality is like in each different kind of, you know, facet of it that that I found very intriguing. So when you come into a TV show, like, are you trying, like, do you watch like a bunch of episodes of, of the show previous to, to your episode and like kind of study the show and like try to bring ideas that are similar to what you've seen before? Or do you come in just like with your free creative mind and just like pitch whatever you think would be perfect for this episode that you're working on and then kind of hope that the showrunner gives you a shot? Like how, how do you approach that process? It's definitely a lot more meticulously planned than like just coming in blind. I definitely watch the show. I do my research and whatever, like, let's say I step into season two, but I'm in episode four, I'll request the scripts that happened previous. So I make sure I know where the characters arcs are and where the series is going. And if they have further on kind of episodes, I love to read those too, just to get a really big picture of where the season is headed. And tonally, I take notes of, you know, editing style, what their tone is each actor where they've kind of been pushed and where you see kind of their talent shine and and where I would like to kind of even steer them even in a bigger direction. And I really pay attention to their little nuances and potentially you can kind of also see um, their weaknesses and how to help them there by watching, you know, the series. And then also I love referencing and seeing what the cinematographers are doing and, and what their, what their kind of personalities like in terms of, the way the show is lit and even like camera moves and stuff because you don't want to go in and propose a you know a hyper you know a big zoom and a long lens when you know the show is shot in medium and it's more about you know the space or something like you just have to be really aware of tonally what the show is but then once I have a strong grasp of that and I feel really confident with what I've seen I look at my scripts my personal scripts and sort of decipher where might be some really unique spots where I could bring some of like the mullen splash to the script I have. I don't know, you know, sometimes there's those elements where you could be like, oh, I have a really, you know, amazing idea that I could add to this and and bring a little bit of a flair that still fits the mold, but also it gives the series a new edge that it might not have had, you know, or there's this incredible chase sequence where you get to go through bridges and, and you can propose you know, I want to do pop zooms here because I think it might be really unique and new and cool James Bond move that we can't afford on this budget level. But if we do this, you know, you sort of pitch them in different ways. And the showrunners are usually very open and honest. And if they think it still works, they'll say, go for it. And I usually give visual references. Sometimes you get to work with the DP before and sometimes you don't. But in my binder, I have usually photographs or hand kind of drawings or, you know, I always have my my overhead kind of blocking schemes and everything in my binder so at all times I can sort of show the visual key elements to the team and that just makes communication so much easier so I always have that on hand and that's always benefited me in tv especially when there's no time you can just be like oh and this is what I was thinking here I love this overshot from run lola run can we do that for this upcoming scene and they're just like yes done good You are very prolific, clearly, as a, as a director and, and as a writer, but you're also an actress. And so I want to hear also how you make time to act, how you prioritize that in your projects, um, if you stipulate it in the things you produce, like how do you advocate for yourself as an actress in addition to yourself as a filmmaker? 
haven't been acting in a very long time, but that doesn't mean that I don't get to be with act. Like I get to be with actors all the time. So, um, I do you absolutely, miss it? I love acting and no, I don't miss it because I feel like I'm surrounded by it, uh, constantly. And I'm involved in intertwining and like communicating with actors and, and pushing them to do more and take bigger risks. Like the thing I miss the most, and this, this happened to me at a young age when I was like in grade six, I think six or seven, I was very shy and very reserved in elementary school. And there was this improv like class. And I didn't even know really what that was. I went to a French elementary school and I was like very quiet and shy. But what happened in improv class was like, I became an animal, like a wild animal. Like anything went, I turned into this other person. I completely transformed into like this beast who was unafraid of anything, who had a voice, who was like so funny and like so cool and like, you know, um, a di totally different person than who I was on a daily basis at school, who was like very prim and proper and always did her homework. And that's why I wanted to go into theater school. That feeling of being on stage and feeling completely free where you weren't in the present moment, you were in an imaginary world and you were connecting to those around you in this space that didn't exist like on earth. It was in this imaginary sequence. And I felt so free in that moment. Like there was no judgment, even though there was even more judgment. Like when I look back, I'm like, April, it was even more harsh judgment on you. But in that moment, you don't think of the judgment and every actor loves this. Like if you get to cross that intangible, whatever that into the present moment, you forget where you are. You don't think about the camera in your face. You don't think about the critics. And if you get two or three stars or if your hair is kind of like in your teeth, everything disappears. And that was a huge changing, like earth shattering moment for me. And I, I thought if there was something I could do for the rest of my life, that's what I want it to be. So I went to theater school, Ryerson University in Canada and spent four years doing like Shakespeare and Chekhov and really intense theater training, uh, which was different than I thought and didn't have the freedom that I remember loving. And I think I'm always trying to strive for that with my performers on set and as a director too, trying to be overly prepared, but then also allow for like the moving beast that is cinema to just take the wind and sails and like let the ship move in a direction it needs to with steering it and making sure you don't crash into a mountain but you know let let everyone's creative juices flow and let them all come together to create something really new and unique that makes sense um so I have kind of this a, a bigger question but like what would you say because like like Liz was saying you have a very prolific career you've directed like a bunch of features and, and TV, but like, what is the key for you to creating new opportunities for yourself, especially directing opportunities, especially early on? Like, what, what was the thing that like got you your second feature, your third feature, your fourth, like what, what were the, what were the things that you were doing to make that happen? It was like nonstop focus, I have to admit, and dedication. And Tim and I spent like eight years in a small room like this, creating feature films together. Like we didn't have a car. You don't have anything but what you're creating in front of you. you have paper, you have pen. And you know, if you don't make it happen, no one's going to make it happen. If you don't go out there and 
like shamefully start knocking on doors. Like I remember our first feature, Rock, Paper, Scissors, The Way the Tosser is about a mockumentary and like a mock doc. And it's about a character who loves Rock, Paper, Scissors, goes to the world championships, real thing. We shot at the real championships. We thought we had a hook. We thought we had a movie. Radio silence. There aren't any stars. Nobody wants to see the movie. What are you going to do? You have a product. How do you get it out there? And Tim and I went across the country doing rock, paper, scissors championships in every college and university, watching the movie, and then doing this massive tournament at the end, like in Toronto with all of the different provincial, you know, winners. We flew them all down. It took eight months. Like, no shame. Like, I'm telling you, you can't have any fear. You just have to do it for what you love, like fight for the film. So we would be like on the news channels and like the weather network doing rock, paper, scissors. Like I was in a <laughs> short tutu and he was in short shorts that revealed a very bad camel toe. Like I'm saying it was ridiculous. Like we just stopped at nothing to get noticed and um, get the film out there. And by the time we came back to Ontario after traveling the whole country in a Yaris, with nothing and eating mustard sandwiches and pickles, we came back and we were like, to the to literally Alliance Atlantis, we were like, okay, here's our press. We've done every radio show and every morning show across the country. We went to every university and every kid wants to see themselves at the end of the film because we did this little like homage to these guys. Everyone is ready. These, this is our press book. And our press book was humongous. And the distributors looked at us and they said yes. They couldn't take no for an answer. Your first film, you can't give up on it. If you give up on it, it will die. Like you have to be there every second of the way and fight for that film. And it got distribution. It did so well. It still to this day is the most successful film we've done <laughs> because it got the most attention, I'm sure. Uh, and it sold, you know, the DVD sales were amazing. It sold to pay TV. Everybody across the country kind of knew us as this like dynamic tossing duo, which, you know, is comedy and also a spoof and absolutely ridiculous. And then to break that mold and actually become serious filmmakers after that, that's another like part two of the chapter. But what set us apart, I believe, is never, you know, even, never residing, like never taking a step back or never being too embarrassed. Like we were never embarrassed to be like, I'm calling Christopher Lloyd. We need him in Dead Before Dawn. We cannot make this movie without Christopher. I'm going to call his managers, you know, and I'm there in slippers and I'm pretending to be my own assistant calling from Hollywood and talking <laughs> to the manager. And I'm like, yes, we can get Mr. Lloyd his script, you know, and, it, and then Tim's running out the door, FedExing it to somewhere in like Nashville. You know, now that I know how the industry actually works, I'm mortified at what I did. You know, but you're blind. led you to success. Why would you be mortified? Like, no, I, I just think that is so embarrassing. Like, no way. how could that have happened? But, you know, you do what you have to. You, you do what you have to. And if you don't do that for your project, nobody else is going to. Like, the world is too busy. There are too many filmmakers out there. Other things might happen to other people, but it didn't happen here. It was like, you know, every day you wake up and I feel like it was like, oh, okay, what's today? And it's like, you know, the, I feel like the clock was always ticking, even with Wander, ha you know, COVID happened. We had a theatrical plan. It blew up. Like what now? How are we going to get people to see it? You know, after six years of putting our lives into it, nothing ever turns out like so smooth. <laughs> All right. So April, what is the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? The first film we ever made was Rock, Paper, Scissors, The Way of the Tosser. 
the one that, that I the just first was speaking project about. ever or? first one ever first oh. one ever wow. we never did a short we did a feature let me just repeat that <laughs> The first thing I ever made was a feature film, not a short. <laughs> Again, would I have changed things? Probably. Like, we probably should have tested things with a short, but I was like, shorts aren't sellable, especially like now they are. But, you know, 15 years ago, you couldn't make money off a short and there was no avenue to show shorts. Social media now, every shorts are awesome. But back then, you couldn't make profit from a short. So I was like, we're going to put the same amount of money into a short than a feature. We got to make a feature because we got to make our money back because we got to make it work. <laughs> so we went straight, like head first into a feature film shot in seven days with eight people, two of which were my sisters. One was my grandma, my dad, and, <laughs> and mom. Tim's brother was also the first AD. Like it was a very micro organism, which has so much heart. Like, how do I feel about it now? I just want to hug those people. You're just like, you're so innocent and naive and you don't know what you're about to get into. This is going to be the hardest journey of your lives. And I look at us and we're like so bright eyed and bushy tail. And we believe in like, you know, the magic of movies and everything's going to work out. And like the characters are also so innocent. It's so endearing because you can see the truth in it. Like you can see us, we're like deers in headlights. And there's something so pure about that. You know, when you can see filmmakers exercising their muscles for the first time and, and not understanding the, you know, the criticism that's about to come from the industry and what that's going to be, because you're just like creating in this bubble at first, it was so difficult. Like we didn't even know, um, it was shot on P2, the P2 camera. Uh. And it was like brand new technology at the time. And we had little, I think it was four gig cards. So we could only shoot four minutes at a time. You know, that's all we had. And we were the first digital film to go through color correction at Telefilm, in, uh, at Technicolor, at Technicolor in Canada. Wow. And they didn't really know how to color our film because it was the first time they had to ingest everything with these little you know, we had four minutes, four minutes, four minutes. And it was just like, we barely wow. could shoot enough. And they didn't understand P2 at the time. Also, we were, we've always been on this, the, the forefront of new technology. Like we were the first to shoot on the red one with gravy train too. And people, it was still finicky and people didn't really get it. And then with the 3D rig, we had two ice packs on our camera, one sitting horizontal, one sitting vertical, and they would overheat each other. As we entered the industry, film was going away and we were like on the generation of now film is going to be digital. So that was another whole like um, massive learning curve with uh, rock, paper, scissors and kind of all of our features up until now, it's like everything's kind of caught up with each other. Wow. You'll be the first uh, filmmakers to ever shoot on a holographic film one day. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> oh no, don't even tell me that. Uh, <laughs> the possibilities. Um... <laughs> so um <laughs> the second question is what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received don't ever doubt you can never doubt especially if you're 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 the voice of the film and you're the leader of the film you just you have to find a solution you have to move forward you have to be smart and you have to carry the troops with you whether you're sitting in quicksand you cannot let them know you have to like 
carry them through the storm, even if there's a tornado in the horizon and you see it and you know it's coming, you have to like hold them tight and get them through every day. And I think once you're, once you're in it, you're in it. <laughs> like, there's just no choice. Uh, that's, that's at least how I feel. Do you have a goal or, and if you do, what is your goal as a, as a storyteller? When I look at the films that have made such a huge impact on me and, and why I, why I am in love with what I do and why I am constantly trying to chase this dragon. It's almost to me, like, I love life. I, I, I love the little moments that happen between strangers, the pieces of the natural world that kind of expose themselves to you every day, memories and, and fractions of memories and why certain moments stand out in your life and why others don't. And as a filmmaker, I'm obsessed with that. I'm obsessed with time and freezing those moments of connectivity. Like what makes that spark between two strangers in an elevator or why, you know, do you remember a grandfather tying a young boy's shoe? Like all these little things in life that I think are so absolutely stunning. And then when I see a feature film or a work of art or music or anything that kind of strikes your heart and like makes you feel, whether that's fear, love, paranoia, happiness, joy, or there's some sort of like connectivity, like universal human experience. Um, that really is why I love doing what I do. And, and I strive to always kind of capture whether it's between two actors or whether it's, whether it's the music in a film or whether it's in a, just a visual silent image in a, in a film that captivates you enough to induce feeling and and then stick in your brain forever like et over the moon like these little iconic images that make us all human and connect us somehow and why are those images the ones that stand out and stand the test of time and i think i'm obsessed with trying to find out what they are and come from a true place and and put them in a movie as much as i can like you know i i look back and i'm like i think that film had like 10 of those moments that film had like two that film had like 15. And you know, you're always like, I want to make a film that has like 50% of those truthful sparks of life. And then you can rewind them and play them again. And I just think that's fascinating. The whole thing's fascinating. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice that you would give yourself? Oh, there's so much advice I would give myself, but if I did, I think I would just like freeze. <laughs> I just like, I'd be like, are you sure? Uh, or even for rock, paper, scissors, like what would you have told yourself in making that movie? I couldn't have told myself anything because I just wouldn't have continued. <laughs> it was just <laughs> too much. You know what I would have said? You're doing all right, kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like just words of encouragement because there is so much uh, negativity and a lot of no's and I, you know, I was coming up against a lot, even early on my career, I was like a 1%, you know, I was like the only woman on set half the time and, and, and trying to like find that voice. I remember in gravy train and dead before dawn, especially, I was always trying to be heard as like being the director. And I, I always thought, you know, why is it? I want to, I want to go in the bathroom and just scream. Like, what is it? And looking back now, I just want somebody to go, you're doing all right, kid. Like you're, 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 you're making it happen. Like, don't be so hard on yourself. I would go to bed analyzing the shots that I got, the shots that I missed, how I would edit the day that I got. 
and I would be like, you know, taking notes and what could I do better the next day? And I want to keep those aspects of my personality. I think it's what makes me strive to, to achieve more, but it's nice once in a while for somebody to just be like, it's okay. Like you're going to fall on your face. You're going to get bumps and bruises. You're going to break a few bones and a tooth even on set, but you're going to be okay. <laughs> it's important to find the joy in it, in, in the mishaps and find the love in the creative process rather than like being like over analytical and so hard on yourself to the point where, you know, you're frozen. <laughs> Our last question um, is making movies hard. Well, of course. It is. And it also is the most rewarding thing in the world. But I think it's so much harder than anyone could ever imagine just because of so many elements that have to come together so perfectly to actually get something shot. Sometimes I think it's a complete miracle or a jinx. Like even just to shoot one hour on film, so many elements have to be exactly right to actually nail a scene, let alone a 90 minute film. <laughs> and like, still I'm always humbled by it I'm always I always realize like it, there's so many more elements to it all than just us you know and it's hard <laughs> but I love it <laughs> wow well thank you so much April um if people want to know more about Wander see the movie find out more about you where should they go Wander is playing on demand everywhere digitally and some select theaters December 4th. So it's available everywhere. And you can check out our website, aprilmullen.com. If you ever want to find me, I'm on Instagram too. And thank you for supporting independent cinema. It's, it's an incredible, difficult challenge to create original, not remake, you know, original work in, in this atmosphere uh, of today. And, and just thank you for, for taking the time to allow us to, make a smaller feature film with a smaller budget, but allow us to be creative and tell new stories. So thank you for supporting us. All right. Thanks for listening. And thanks to April Mullen and Judy Merrick for all their work arranging this podcast uh, episode. It's been great. Um, you can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH Podcast. Also YouTube as well, Making Movies is Hard Podcast, I believe. And I'm RFB on Twitter and Instagram. Liz, where are you? I'm Liz Manishaw on Twitter. Um, I'm really trying to get to 2,000 followers. Please follow me. Just please. I'll follow you back. Well, I'll pay you money. Um, and then I'm Liz Manishal Film on Instagram. And please, if you like the show, like we talked about earlier, you can leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And thank you so much to Carly McKeating for editing this episode. Thank you, Carly. And we will talk to you guys next week. Man, I disturbed Michael. He Look, he's so asleep. He's just like, <laughs> just whatever. <laughs> <laughs>